Mark chapter 2, the passage we're looking at is on page 837 in your pew Bible. Let me encourage you, if you don't have your copy of God's Word with you, grab that one uh, on the pew with you there, and then we follow along together as we look at this exciting passage. Years ago, I was serving as music minister in Huntsville, Alabama. Was was privileged to be a part of a, of a church plant there, getting getting started as a church. One of the things we're trying to get started as a music program was that we would have throughout the year some good quality concerts where we'd invite artists to come in. That we would use utilize the choir talents within the church and use it as an outreach opportunity and a praise opportunity within the church. And I went to meet with the session just as this young man uh, working with the music there to talk to them about it. And we had to discuss the funding for this particular program. And so I laid out what it was going to cost, came up with my budget, tried to be well prepared, and then said, this is what it's going to cost. And one of the elders, a dear brother, his name's Ashley, he, he asked me, well, Brandon, um, uh, how do you think we ought to pay for it? And I said, well, Ashley, I think there's, there's two, two ways we could go about it. We could, we could pass the plate. People kind of expect you to pass the plate whenever you show up at church, and that gives people an opportunity to voluntarily give toward the cause. The other thing we could do would be to, to sell tickets to members that they could then have tickets that they could give to their friends, and that would also be good because they'd have something to hand them and say, why don't you come and, and enjoy this music with us tonight? And Ashley said, well, Brandon, which, how would you like to pay for this? And I, I said, well, you know, of, of the options, I think the offering is probably the best way to go. Ashley asked me a third time, Brandon, how would you like to pay for this? I don't remember the third answer I got, but probably about the fifth time he asked me that question, I looked at him and said, Ashley, well, what do I want? I want the session just to write a check and let's get it done. Ashley said, I make the motion. (laughs) You see, he was asking me a great question. And I was giving him a very limited answer. An answer out of a very limited framework, a a very narrow in scope. I, I was hearing a great question, and I was giving a horrible answer. Well, maybe not horrible, but it wasn't the best answer. Let's look at this text. This is Mark chapter 2. Mark, remember, the student of Peter who was recounting to Mark and Mark recording for us this amazing event. Matthew records it, Luke records it, but we're listening to Mark tell the story today. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed, 
and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Almighty God, we thank you for this, your word. Would you write it upon our heart that we might not sin against you? Would you use it to open our eyes? Would you use it to inspire our action? Would you use it to loosen our tongues to praise you? Father, thank you that though the grass withers and the flower fades, and in the midst of winter we see them to lie dormant, but your word is active, living, and eternal. Father, we praise you and thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So I quoted before 2 Timothy 3, says all scripture is inspired by God. All scripture is profitable. All scripture is given that the man of God, the woman of God, would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. But there are some passages. There are just some passages like this. I'll tell you, this is a favorite passage for preachers. It's rich. It's amazing. It's a captivating event. It's theologically rich, and it's masterfully told by Mark. And it's just wonderful. You, you could almost say amen upon reading this and go home. Almost. <laughs> this is the first time, as Mark talks about the life of Jesus, that Jesus, in Mark's accounting, receives pushback. What we've seen before is he's healed, he's preached, and everybody's flocking to him. But for the first time, we hear the murmuring. Now, one thing as we look at God's word together, as we look at the gospels and and the life of Jesus, you're going to find that he is so often preaching to these kind of concentric circles of people. You would have those who sat right at his feet, who hung on every word. You think about Peter and James and John, those who were right there with him at the, uh, uh, the transfiguration, who were there with him praying in the gardens, those very close. You had his disciples, the twelve, as they were right there with him, the seventy that went forward. You think about the hundreds that followed him, but also interspersed in there, you're going to find in the crowd the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those who began, as we see in this case, to begin the murmuring. To, be, to begin the, the talking about and questioning and then the plotting, the deceiving, and ultimately the killing. So we see these different crowds and, and we have to examine what are they hearing and, and to whom is Jesus speaking. So as we look at this particular text, I want to think about all those who had crowded into this room and those who were struggling to get in. And I think this, this passage, I've, I've heard it preached for different conferences. I've heard it for missions conferences. I've heard it uh, uh, preached in terms of compassion ministries. I've heard it talked about in terms of evangelism. I believe that this particular historical fact, this event, teaches us so very much. And let's just look at the things that it, it does teach us. Let's begin by talking about the whole issue of missions. I, I believe one of the, one of the things that, that rises out of the text is the idea that here are these four men... And it says they, it begins by saying they came to him and they had a paralytic carried by four men. So the way that the language is constructed, that it was a group, more than just the four who carried him, but a group that were bringing this dear friend to Jesus. He can't get there by himself. They have to carry him. They they bring their friend to the door. Excuse us, they cry. (laughs) Can, can, Can we get it? Our friend needs to see Jesus. Our friend needs to meet Jesus. Please, they can't get in. So they get bold. 
They get bold and they, they climb up, and there's some trust involved in this paralytic friend here too, because anybody that's ever done first aid and care like that and trained with a gurney and stretchers and that sort of thing, to be carried and to be lifted up on things is a dangerous proposition. But they were being so very bold, and they took this boy up on the roof of this house. Now, don't think about it like a pitched, shingled roof, but a flat roof on which sometimes crops would grow. Uh, they would use it in order to, to have additional land uh, for them to, to grow crops. It would have soil and sod across the top. And often in the cool of the evenings, uh, they would go and they would sit on the roof of the house in order to escape the, the confined and, and warm conditions in their home. And they get up on top of the roof. And then they begin to literally dig through the roof. Now talk about an interruption in the midst of worship. Can you imagine just for a second if all of a sudden in the midst of this service, <laughs> it might wake some of us up, uh, if all of a sudden uh, the, the, the sheetrock and, and, and the shingles and everything from the top of this roof began to fall because somebody couldn't get in the door because it was so crowded, so they lowered somebody right down in the midst of us here. I mean, an amazingly bold example of missions right here. They climb on the roof, they dig a hole in the roof, and they lower this man down to meet Jesus. One of my heroes. It's hard to pick heroes that are still with us. I usually wait till the end of the story is written, but, but this man is a faithful man. Frank Barker, the man that God used to plant Briarwood in, in Birmingham, Alabama. Served there faithfully for 40 years and has continued on as Harry Reader's become the pastor there. Continued on to, to serve mightily and, and to endorse the, the new pastor and say, this is my pastor now. And, and listen to him and, and such an amazing ministry that's gone on there. But he tells the story about how he got saved. And before he was saved, uh, he actually had some, some fellows that he ran with and uh, played cards with and got into all kind of trouble with. And, and then he got saved, and he was the first among this bunch to get saved. And he was very bold about his evangelism, but always so hesitant to go back and to evangelize these men who knew him before. And one day, one of the men came and made an appointment with him and was sitting there in his office, and Frank comes in, and he said, well, come on back. And he sat down in his study with this man, and this man said, Frank, you're a Christian, right? He said, yes. He said, how long have you been a Christian? And Frank told him that it had been several years. Frank, I thought we were friends. He said, well, we are. Frank, why didn't you tell me about Jesus? Don't you care? Frank was floored. He was humbled. This man had become a Christian. And, and he came to meet with him and questioned, said, why? Why did you hold Hold that back from me. And they prayed, and Frank asked his forgiveness, and they rejoiced in the fact that they were brothers in Christ together and would celebrate eternity in the presence of God together. And then this man looked at Frank Barker and said, Now, let's go get the rest of them. There's a boldness about this particular thing. What do you, what do you think about these, these men who bring this man to meet Jesus? What, what do you have to do to be equipped like these men? These, these boys weren't, weren't, weren't equipped to save this man. They were not doctors. They could not heal him. They could not make him better. They couldn't make him walk 
again. The paralytic was obvious in his inability, but these men knew their own inability. They knew their limitations, and they knew where they themselves ended. They could not make their friend well, and they had to be frustrated. They had to be desperate, to be caring for somebody so much and not be able to help. You think about Paul in Romans chapter 9, where he cries out and he says, Oh, I wish that even, even if it took me being cursed, I wish I could explain in a way that you would understand and embrace the gospel. As he spoke to his brothers, his Jewish brothers, wanting them to become brothers in Christ. Think about the frustration of these men. And then now think about us. Are we at least as equipped as these men? I say even more so. You see, you know Jesus. You know Jesus. You know the incarnation. That is, God made man. You know the power of the Holy Spirit to save. You know the love of God which paid the price for our sins in the blood of His only begotten Son. You know that God is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever hope or imagine. You know the promise where we who have gathered together here two or more in the name of Jesus that He's here with us. What hinders you from bringing those who will not come in their own strength? What hinders you from bringing them to worship? To carry them, as it were, and bring them. And it was not until, think about it, it was not until this man was face to face with Jesus that he then had the ability to bring himself. And we think about those who said, well, they'll come if they want to. Well, how will they want to unless they come? How will they want to unless they meet Jesus? Your friend may not want to come. But they may come through your graciousness. And let me tell you, they may come through your persistence. They may come through your continued invitation. Just remember the audacious actions of these men. Cut a hole in the roof if that's the only way you can get them to come. To hear God's word. To know what we call the doxological evangelism of the people of God. The gathering of his people. As we praise that others would hear and say there is something different. There is something real. There is something that I need. Oh, and notice one other thing in the midst of this. It is verse 5. Verse 5, as we look at the text, it says this, And Jesus saw their faith. They were being faithful. They were being faithful in bringing their friend. It's kind of an amazing thing. And we read the text, you would think he says, And Jesus saw his faith, because he then turns and addresses that. But he saw their faith, that in their faithfulness they brought, they came. And God, who was able to do more than we could dream, accomplished all that was needed in the life of that man that they loved. But this this text talks more about than just missions. You know, it, it talks to us, it speaks to us about the greatest of our fundamental needs. It speaks about what we need the most. Imagine for a second you're this young man. This young man has just been been through this, carried about, carried up on the roof, dropped down. I, I can only imagine he's he's He may not have been a man of prayer before all this, but he certainly became one as he was being lowered down in the midst of this crowded room. And then he looks up from his cot and and he sees Jesus there. And then he hears these words, Son, your sins are forgiven. I can only imagine the face of this young man. A forced smile, a nod, a confused disappointment. A misunderstanding of what was happening there. Back in 1943, psychologist uh, Abraham Maslow uh, described what he believed to be man's basic needs. And he came up with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? 
self-actualization, self-esteem, love and belonging, safety, and the basic physical needs like food, water, rest. Now, there's definitely some common grace teaching in that. There's definitely some truth in that. You think about some of the foundational human needs like food and clothing. James talks to us about that. He says we don't just say, hey, be warm and well-fed, but let's talk about Jesus. He says, no, let's, let's feed, let's clothe, let's take care. And we take care of widows and orphans. This is true faith. This is, this is uh, true, but an incomplete truth we find here in Maslow. And an incomplete truth can do often so much more damage than an outright lie. It's to leave out the most important thing. Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 He said, I decided that I would know nothing among you. Nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is the greatest of human needs, is to understand Jesus Christ crucified for us. Why? We heard it read right here a few minutes ago. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Why? Because God loves us. Tim Keller in his, in his book on marriage, here he says this. He says, to be loved but not known is, is comforting, but it's superficial. That is, to be loved but not known is superficial. To be mo- known and not loved is our greatest fear. That is, that somebody would know me and not love me is at its heart our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved, well, that's like love, being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness. And it fortifies us against any difficulty that life can throw at us. That idea to be fully known and unconditionally loved. That That is the greatest of our needs. To be fully known better than we know ourselves. And this is the amazing thing. You, you, You see, there's... There's, there's a tendency to, to be self-conscious, to be a bit shy when, when you think if people get to know me well, they won't like me. When people get to know how bad I am, they'll be repulsed by me. That idea, if you really knew me, you wouldn't think as highly of me as you, as you do. And you want to know something? I think that's a truth that can accurately be said about each one of us. It's a truth that each one of us bears in knowing that there are those parts about us, those sins that, 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 that repulse us, that make us weep. But here's the wonderful truth of what, of, of what we read in a text like this, is that God knows them better than we know them, and He loves us anyway. Amen? He loves us anyway. Nothing is needed more than that. Not even walking, young man. You need to know that you are loved by God. Imagine the cry of this boy's heart. He's looking, he says, Jesus, if you cared about me, you'd give strength to these worthless legs of mine. If you you cared anything about me, you would make me well like you've made everybody else well. Why won't you answer my prayer? The reality of the pain in our lives it's, it's real. Pain is real, but we often confuse the presence of pain with the absence of God's love. We too often confuse the presence of pain with the absence of God's love. But note this, 
if this boy had not for some period of time, we don't know, but if this young man had not for some period of time had useless legs, he may never have met Jesus. And it was through that that his friends were motivated to bring him to meet the Savior. And we also need to know too that Jesus does in this event communicate the greatness of his love. We'll get to that in a second. Mission about, it's a message about missions. It's a message about the greatest need that we have. It's a message about the reality of sin. That's what Jesus asked there in the text. He says, he, he perceived that, that the scribes were questioning in their heart. And he says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take up your bed and walk. Now consider the fullest, uh, fullness of this question. Jesus asked them, which is easier to say? Right? Which is easier to say? An honest answer, if you're a huckster, if you're a scam artist, the honest answer is it's so much easier to say your sins are forgiven than get up and walk. Why? Because there's no visible manifestation of what's taking place there. It's this idea I can say your sins are forgiven and there's no way that a doctor or a, a, a pastor or anybody could look and poke them and, and listen to their heart and say, oh, well, yeah, their sins have been forgiven. I can tell. Here's the evidence. And so for a huckster, the answer would be it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. There's no way to disprove that. But which is easier to say in honesty? Which is easier to say in effectivity? The scribes got it wrong. They answered the question wrong. The power over the effects of sin, the power over the effects of a fallen creation, storms, drought, thorns, sickness, all of these things. When Jesus speaks, these things must submit. The storm must cease. Useless legs then have strength. Blind eyes see, deaf ears hear. Jesus speaks and these things happen. At his word, storms must stop and lame men must walk. But Martin Lloyd-Jones speaks about this, this idea about sin. And he speaks about sin as being the only real problem that God has ever had to deal with. He takes a little license there. Don't pursue that, theologian nitpickers. But, but he's making a point. He said sin is the only real problem that God has ever had to deal with in creation. Of all issues, sin is what had to be dealt with. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this. He says, such is the problem with which we are confronted. There is in us, in man, this terrible, mighty power called sin. It alienates us from God and it leads us to hate him. And at the same time, it debases us and leads us to conduct that can only be described as disgusting. This is the problem with which God had to deal. And so for Jesus to say for real, your sins, my son, are forgiven. That would only be loving and merciful if it was real. If it was real. And so let's talk about this. The idea about dealing with sin and about the greatest need that we have is to be loved by God and for Him to love us. He has to deal with that which debases and destroys us. And we come to this final message that is a message of compassion and grace right here in the text. We have to ask the question, how is it that this man's sins are forgiven? 
How is it that they're forgiven? Now, think about this for a second. Look at the, the narrative of what takes place. He's lowered in. Jesus walks over to him. He speaks to him. There's no dialogue between the two of them. Only thing that's said in this text is about the faith of his friends. There is no expression of repentance by the mouth of this young man. And nowhere do we find in, doc, in, in Scripture the doctrine of forgiveness without repentance. And so there, there, there's a difficulty in just reading this text. But I do believe that Mark is making a mighty point in the way that he, he lays this out before us. Do you see that? The man doesn't repent, but Jesus says your sins are forgiven. I see you sitting on the edge of your seats. That's a good thing. How, did, how does this work out? Well, it's not that Jesus, it is not that Jesus made a, an exception to prove a point here. That's not it. I believe the key is in verse 8. Look with me. Verse 8, it says, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they, the scribes, thus questioned within themselves and said, Why do you question these things? What is Jesus doing? He is discerning the hearts of those that are in the room. And I do believe that Jesus discerned in the heart, however crude, however small, however simple the repentance. It, it has to be that Jesus knew this man's heart. That he looked and he saw a young man broken before him. And the reason I believe that Mark tells us this story in this way, recounts his history accurately and factually this way, is that he wants to show us that Jesus stands ready to forgive. Jesus is eager to forgive. I believe that Mark tells the story in this way to show us that Jesus is abundant and lavish in his forgiveness. And that he sees in the heart of this young man. And he doesn't sit there and say, okay, now you need to say this and do this and act this way and then go do this and then I can pronounce that you are forgiven. He, he doesn't do that. He looks at him. He knows him. He loves him. And he has compassion. And he says, your sins are forgiven. I think about a hymn written a couple hundred years ago, 1759. Joseph Hart wrote a great hymn. Come ye sinners, poor and needy. Weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. A couple of verses later it says, Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness that God requires is to feel your need of him. But this young man knew he needed Jesus. And he says, Matthew talks about this. He tells the boy, take heart. My son, your sins are forgiven. He tells the boy, arise. Take your cup. Go home. Carry that thing which marked you for years. But there's, a, there's that issue. Is it easier that he's walking out of there? Or is it easier that he's walking out of there forgiven? The scribes were right to a point. They were right to a point. They said, what is this? Only God, who can forgive but God alone, right? 7, verse 7, who can forgive but God alone? If I were to walk up this morning and punch Don Hollins right in the nose, foolish move, right? If I were to walk up and punch Don Hollins right in the nose and then Bernie Hall were to meet me after the service and come up to me and say, hey, Brandon, listen, I just want you to know I forgive you. How much sense would that make? <laughs> Jesus forgives because Jesus was offended. Jesus was the one sinned against. God and God alone 
is the object offended, the person offended by our sin. As King David confessed in the song, against you and you alone have I sinned. So we see the compassion of our Savior. Look at it. When he looks at that boy and he says, your sins are forgiven, what he's doing is saying, I will lay down my life so that those words I just spoke will ring eternally true. I will pay for your sins. Now, can you see why these friends would want to bring their friend to Jesus? Why would they want to, why, why would they want, why they would want to do anything to get him there? How wondrous is this Savior? This is the Savior that we celebrate this season. This is the Savior that we, we must do all that we can to make sure that others are introduced to the Savior who would look and say, you sinned against me, but your sins are forgiven because I have paid for them. Now, know the fullness, the richness of my love. This is our Savior whose birth we celebrate this season, whose ministry in life and death and in resurrection we rejoice with exceeding great joy. Oh, what an amazing thing to see just straight from this text that we would all be amazed and glorify God and saying, oh my, oh my, we have never seen anything like this. Amen? Pray with me. Almighty God, let it be the testimony of us as we go forward that it would be that we have seen nothing like this, but that we have seen this, that we have seen our Savior full of pity, love and power, full of mercy and compassion, who does heal our bodies, but more importantly, heals our soul, who knows us more and better than we know ourselves and loves us anyway. Oh, Father, let that be the good news that we proclaim this Christmas season. Let that be the joy with which we celebrate. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your spirit-inspiring mark to pen these words as taught by Peter, that we would know, we would, we would see Jesus, and we would rejoice in it. We praise you in his name. Amen.